Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Wilson. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we've been in a series called Following the King. And we've been going through the genealogy of Matthew. Um, and so we're going to actually conclude the genealogy today. And next week, we're going to get into the whole story for several weeks of the birth of Jesus. But before I jump into my message, as we were worshiping, a couple of testimonies, a couple of cool things that God's done, I've heard about this week, um, or I've participated in this week, came to mind. I just want to share with you really quick. And two of them really fit with what Jamie was talking about. So two different people this week I, I talked to, two friends, told me about incredible financial blessing that came their way. I have one friend who is getting their hours cut at work, and they... Uh, so a, f a friend of their parents sent them a check in the mail for $10,000. And they had no idea about any circumstances going on in their life. They just said, hey, we know you just had a baby and blah, 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 and we just wanted to bless you, so here's $10,000. So everyone, I'm going to tell you that person's uh, name right now so you can mail that, become friends with that person too really quick. I have another friend who got laid off couple months ago, he felt like God told him that his, he was going to get laid off. And just this week, he got hired as a sales manager in a new position in a new company that he has so much experience in and like just such a quick turnaround for him of getting a new job. So anyone here who needs a new job, God is for you there. Um, a friend in the room right now, my friend Josh back here, Josh Lives, has been having breakthrough with a Muslim friend of his who's been studying the Bible with every week and just gave him a Bible and his friend is just telling him how much it feels like uh, his heart is connecting to the Word of God. So another, yeah, come on. Some other friends of mine had four Nepali Hindus over for dinner this week and spent like three hours with them and just had so, so many incredible conversations, played worship music with them and um, we're going to do some follow-up Bible studies with them. And then last testimony, I was driving to work on Thursday morning, and I got a phone call, and right away I could tell it was, you know, like, a, it, I said, hello, and they said, hey, this is blah, blah, blah with Spectrum. And usually I just, like, hang up immediately. But I decided to stay on the phone for a second, and he said, how are you? And I said, I'm good. And I said, how are you? And he said, oh, well, I'm, like, partly cloudy. I was like, Okay. Well, I'm going to stay on the phone because this is an opportunity to pray for you, basically. So I listened to everything. No, I don't want cable. No, I don't want whatever else. I'm happy with my phone plan. Even though Spectrum does have a great deal, okay, if you're looking to get a good deal on phones. Um, and I said, hey, man, really quick, what's your name? He said, Robert. I said, well, hey, I, you said you were feeling partly cloudy, and I was wondering if I could pray for you really quick. And he said, what? Yeah, can I, can I pray for you? Like, Jesus loves you, and he wants to bless you right now and bring joy to your heart. And so I just said a simple prayer for him, something like, Jesus loves you. I pray that the warmth of God and the love of God will come over your whole body right now. You would feel his presence in this moment and know that he loves you. And he just starts weeping on the phone. I mean, just like, literally, I can hear him crying. And he's like, thank you. Why? What are you talking about? And he's like, Jesus loves you, bro, and prayed for him again and just told him, hey, throughout the day, just meditate on this, um, meditate on these words. Jesus, I want to know you more. Just, I don't know what you think, if you have any faith in God or not, but throughout the day, just keep kind of like thinking about this statement, Jesus, I want to know you more, because this is Jesus you're experiencing right now. And so um, that's just good stuff that's happening. Isn't it good to hear people getting unexpected checks in the mail? 
people encountering the presence of God, um, Muslims and Hindus being reached right here in Cincinnati. So yeah, Lord, we just say yes to being used by you. And I thank you that you always provide for us. We know that you provide for your kids and, and that you've put us on a mission. So we just say yes to both of those things. As we walk out in mission, we receive your provision. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so turn with me to Matthew 1. And let's read the passage for today. Matthew 1, verse 12 through 16. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok. Favorite name in here for me, Zadok. Um, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Do you like that? The husband of Mary. Because we're trying to set the stage here for something that we're going to dive into the next several weeks, that Joseph isn't the father. He's the legal father, but not the biological, not the, the real father of Jesus. So next week, we're going to dive into Jesus himself. But today, what I want to hone in on is the fourth word in verse 12, deportation. And after the deportation, um, I want to just dive in, do a little bit of like review of what is the significance of Israel being deported? What happened there? Um, really, I want to answer the question, why was Israel deported, and what significant things happened in exile to Israel? This is a super important part of Israel's history, and it really shapes who Jesus is, and it shapes the context and the place in time that he comes into. So if we're not like, get it, if we don't at least know the spark notes of why Israel was deported and what happened in, in exile, then we're going to really misunderstand a lot of what Jesus is uh, talking about and, and ministering. So I'm going to get more into that. But really quick, I just want to review the genealogy just for a moment. I promise it'll be quick. Verse 17 is a, great, is a great launching pad for reviewing the genealogy. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So we see a couple really interesting things here. Number one, I talked about this a couple weeks ago, but numbers were incredibly significant in the Jewish faith. And, you know, like it was when the earth was created and then God rested on the seventh day, that sends a message to um, all of Israel from then on that seven is the number of completion. And then the, the number one, what is this recurring phrase in the Old Testament? God is one. So like that, when you hit one in the Old Testament, it's supposed to remind you of the unity of God. So my point here is that 14 generations, 14 is talked about three times. This sounds so foreign, I know, to our Western, natural, enlightened mindset, secular culture, whatever. But what a Jew would see here is three sets of double seven. 14, 14, 14. Three sets of double seven. What that screams to them is fulfillment, completion. Completion is here. 
And notice how this genealogy is kind of broken down. We have Abraham to David, David to the deportation of Babylon, and Babylon to the Christ. So what this genealogy is communicating, um, and this isn't like, you know, hardened a fact, but this is what I see. Three main things that we should see in the genealogy and in these genealogy messages. There's a story, there's a context, and there's a promise. There's a story that Jesus is a part of, you know, from Abraham to David, so much would come to mind. Abraham being called, someone who didn't know Yahweh, God saying, hey, Abraham, follow me. Um, leave your prosperous situation and go to the land that I'm calling you to, and I'll make you a blessing. And Abraham says yes. So like that, that story, that's like a seminal moment in the history of Israel. And so when you ever hear the, the name Abraham, that type of thing is going to come to mind. And then we go through um, Israel going into slavery and ex um, Israel going into, into slavery in Egypt. And this, this nation that was being abused and, and um, taken advantage of by Egypt, God comes in and rescues them out of that situation and brings them out. So we have the Exodus event. We have conquering Canaan and, and the whole land that Israel takes over, then the Davidic monarch. So there's, from Abraham to David, there's so much. And then from David to the deportation, last week Luke talked about all the kings. And what was the big takeaway? What was the big, mess, what was the big thing from Luke's message? That none of the kings ended well. That all these kings who are supposed to be representing God and ruling his nation and are set up to succeed actually fail into sexual sin or idolatry or abortion or child sacrifice or all these terrible things. And one of the things I get from this constant failure of the kings is that there's a fundamental problem with humanity. <laughs> that's like the message that's trying to be sent here with this repeated failure is that we don't, we can't, it doesn't work when humans are king. We need Yahweh, we need God to be king. What were we just singing? Christ is the Lord. Christ is Lord. None of us are fit to be Lord over each other's life. <laughs> we need Christ to be Lord. And then that last section, so right now I'm just trying to catch us up on the story. Um, and then the deportation to Jesus. And that's what I want to talk about today. So the, the genealogy communicates a story. It communicates a context. So Jesus, this is so interesting to me that, you know, Jesus appeared into a cultural moment. God took on flesh and became part of a society and a culture. So Jesus wasn't like this um, just sterile human that existed outside of culture and time and language, but he actually was part of a whole nation's story and context. And we're supposed to get that from the Old Testament. Like, we're supposed to um, want to understand Jewish culture and Israelite culture and Israel history because it's the history and it's the culture of our Savior, Jesus. We're gonna miss so much of his ministry, misunderstand so much of his ministry if we don't take the time in our heart to value um, Israelite culture and the Jewish religion. And you know, I'm like, one of the devil's great strategies in human history is anti-Semitism. <laughs> and like, he has used that even in godly people like Martin Luther, the great reformer. He was a pretty, he had a pretty strong distaste for Jews. And what he ended up doing was 
elevating the teachings of Paul. Um, and then he started interpreting, because Je Jesus was too Jewish for Luther. <laughs> but Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul became more like a, you know, a Greek or whatever. And so Luther looked at Paul and said, hey, this is how we're supposed to interpret Jesus. But how many know we're supposed to interpret everything through Jesus, not things through other lenses before Jesus. So anyways, a way I think about the importance of understanding the Jewishness, if I'm just gonna say that way, the Jewishness of Jesus is, it really, it sets the stage for him. And if you think about it with that analogy of a stage, think about a play. Imagine a play that was done with an empty set. Imagine if you attended a play where all there was was actors. They weren't in costume, there were no decorations, there was no scenery, there were no weapons, there was no props. You know, like you could enjoy that play. The dialogue could be great. You could follow a lot of what's going on. But ultimately, without that context, without the scenery, without the costumes, without understanding where they are, you're gonna misunderstand a lot of things. You're not gonna be able to follow, you're not gonna be the value, you're gonna even misinterpreting a lot of things. And that's what I think we do when we read the Gospels without understanding Jesus' Jewishness. We misinterpret, we misunderstand a lot of things. I'm not saying like all of us need to start practicing the Passover and Shabbat and whatever, you know, like don't hear that, which it's, it's fine if you wanna do that stuff, that's great. But I'm just saying we need to be, we need to have a value in our heart and some level of determination to educate ourselves about that if we wanna really track with the story of Jesus. And the last thing the genealogy tells us is promise. So think about these two names, Abraham and David, two men in the Old Testament who had the greatest promises given to them. In Genesis 12, 3, God says this to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Does it seem like through Abraham, all the families of the earth are being blessed when Abraham's family is being taken into exile and they're conquered? No, right? <laughs> Like, that's not a really good example of, wow, we're such a blessing to the whole earth. Let, let, let us bless you by taking us over. Here's all our money. Yeah, no. So we're, we, when we hear Abraham, there's this like this kind of discontentment that we should be getting. Like, I thought we were going to be a blessing to the whole world, but we're actually like being squashed by the whole world. We're being run by the Romans right now. That's going to come to mind as the promise to Abraham. And then David, the amazing promise to David. When your days are fulfilled, this is in 2 Samuel 7, and this is me, uh, this is Wilson's version, just making it a little bit shorter. When your days are fulfilled and you die, I will raise up one of your offspring, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So there's a huge dissonance with this promise on two levels when Jesus appears. Number one, um, Israel does have a king, Herod, but he's a total puppet. He has no real power. He's just being used by um, the Roman Caesars to govern the Jews in Israel. So there's not a kingdom. A true kingdom is not happening in Israel right now. And then secondly, Herod is not in the line of David. So literally, you're like, okay, Yahweh said that there would be a king from the line of David on the throne forever. This is not happening. Herod is an imposter. So... Most of us in this room have the benefit of looking at these uh, promises on the other side of the cross. And we get to see that Jesus fulfills both of these promises. Through the Holy Spirit, through the Great Commission, we are a blessing to all nations. We are taking the gospel, we're taking that promise to Abraham 
everywhere, and we are actually being used to bless everyone. And then Jesus is established as king forever. Christ is the Lord. Maybe we say Christ is the president. Like, that's the impact you should have on us. Jesus is in charge. So Jesus, so in this genealogy, where the three things I'm trying to hit, just to catch us up, is that there's a story embedded in the genealogy, there's a cultural context, and there's unfulfilled promises that are waiting to be fulfilled in this genealogy. So let's jump to today's question now, okay? And this is slide two, uh, Denise. Why was Israel deported, and what significant things happened in exile? Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna treat this as two separate questions, okay? We'll go after why was Israel deported first, and then we'll end with what significant things happened in exile. So starting with why was Israel deported, there's a simple yet complex answer. Let's go to the, yeah, there you go. So Israel was in a covenant with Yahweh. When they abided, when they obeyed the covenant, they were blessed. There were blessings that happened. When they were repeatedly unrepentant and not following the covenant, curses came into play. So you can leave this slide up. So when they are, they're in a covenant, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a rabbit trail here about covenants for a minute, but they're in a covenant, and when they abide by the covenant, they get blessings. And the blessings of the old covenant are pretty sweet, okay? We're gonna read them, and it should give us some faith and hope for what we should be believing for in the new covenant, okay? If the old covenant had amazing sick blessings, then imagine the blessings of the new better covenant. So, but when they were repeated, that when repeated and unrepentant disobedience led to the curses being enacted. Now, whenever we say curses, and we think about God's discipline in this context, I think we wince maybe, and to some extent we misunderstand that idea. So I wanna just, I wanna kinda pause there and talk about the curses for a minute. First, we need to look at the curses as a lovingly valid form of discipline by Yahweh to his children. So the word curse, we hear that and we think of like a witch releasing some kind of spell, you know? Or we think a curse and we hear just like four letter word. But this is just like a standard term in the ancient Near East, in the, in the Old Testament time frame. It didn't have the same connotation that it has to us. It was much more similar to like the penalty of a contract, you know, like what would happen if you break a contract? So here's what I wanna say. Israel had fallen hard hearts. God didn't have new soft hearts to work with. So when they disobeyed, he, had to, he couldn't work on the inside, he had to work on the outside, external punishment to let them know. And what good parent doesn't discipline their child when they do something that's harmful to themselves? That's, that's, that's what, how we should be thinking of the curses. When a child does something wrong, the parent brings discipline in, not for the purpose of inflicting pain, but the, for the purpose of teaching them that they did something that's harmful they shouldn't repeat. And I take this a step further, only a sick, sadistic, twisted parent brings blessing to their child when they do something harmful to themselves, right? Like, that's actually messed up if you reward your child for hitting their sibling or if you reward their, your child for burning their hand on the stove, you know, like, um, not saying that you should you know, like spank your kid if they burn their hand on the stove or anything, but I got spanked for that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I was just trying to bring some levity in. Um, 
So like we need to think of this as a number one, we're missing some of the cultural significance of what a curse was in this context. And number two, it was the loving thing of Yahweh to bring in consequences for Israel's actions that were primarily harmful to themselves. It wasn't like God's like, hey, I'm so mad that you did this. You're making me look bad. I have to discipline you. Although there was an elephant of the, there was an element of them making Yahweh look bad, and Yahweh had to make sure that everyone understood this isn't approved Yahweh behavior. But even more so, it was to prevent moral decay and injustice and pain from proliferating in the Israelite society. Now, here's the second thing that hits me: the unconditional forgiveness of Yahweh that is offered whenever they would repent. We see this over and over in the Old Covenant that even, well, first of all, the Old Covenant, we tend to think of the law as like these um, restrictive, um, you know, arbitrary rules that God just decided to pull out of a hat and impose on Israel. When in reality, the Old Testament law, this Old Testament covenant that God made with Israel was to actually help them flourish. They were fallen, broken people, and so God said, hey, here's the right way to live. This is the law. When you follow it, you're gonna experience the natural blessings of following my law. When you don't follow it, you're gonna experience the pain of not living the right way. And so um, God provided a way for them to repent and to be restored in relationship even when they broke the the old covenant law. There was a whole system a whole emphasis, several chapters in the Bible are dedicated to how to do different offerings and sacrifices to be in restored relationship with Yahweh. So when we think of the law and we think, oh, that's the old covenant, mean God thing, we're totally missing the fact that he provided a way to always be restored back into relationship with him. And what that should help us see is that God doesn't change. The difference is that we changed. (laughs) Jesus died and now we have new hearts so God can relate to us differently. But in the Old Covenant, God related with extreme mercy and compassion, and he had a whole system for relationship to be restored. So we shouldn't be thinking, oh, God changed big time. Two amazing examples of this. Um, in the Old Testament, the, the unconditional or the, the forgiveness of Yahweh when people would repent, there's this super evil king named Manasseh. Luke talked about him last week. He was the ruler of Judah. And he set up um, all kinds of like sexual idols in the temple they were supposed to be worshiping Yahweh in. What's more, he sacrificed his own sons to other gods to accumulate spiritual power. And then Manasseh, the curses start to come on him for disobeying, he gets, take, he gets taken into like an initial exile, not the major exile. And what does he do in this horrible moment? He turns his heart towards God and repents. Convenient time to repent, right? Like when you're in jail. <laughs> And guess what God does? Takes him out of jail, takes him out of captivity, brings him back to Israel and restores him and blesses Israel through him. This evil, horrible king, when he repents, God extends mercy and even says, I'm gonna use you now to to rule and to represent me and to bless others. It's incredible. Um, And then another really cool example, one of the most inspiring verses in prayer, on prayer in the whole Bible, it's not gonna come up on the screen, but if you wanna write it down, Jeremiah 7, 16. God says this to Jeremiah. As for you, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry of prayer for them. The implication here is 
don't pray for them because if you pray for them, I'll have to answer it. I, we can't like, people are interceding for Israel and God answers the prayer and then Israel doesn't change. And then another prophet intercedes for Israel and God relents and doesn't send them into exile or doesn't pour out his wrath and they go right back to their evil ways. Because the problem is that the fallen, broken heart. And so anyway, God said, look, this isn't working anymore, okay? Like this is wasted mercy. This is like cheap grace I'm throwing on them. But I am so committed to answering prayer that the only way I can prevent myself from being merciful again in this context is to tell them, don't pray and ask me to be merciful. <laughs> so like our prayer, number one, our prayers are incredibly powerful and God responds to them. And number two, God is eager to pour out mercy to repentant people. And this is actually um, something that I wanted to kind of take away from my message today. When I was in high school, I got into shoplifting and I was just like a little kleptomaniac. And I was stealing tons of gum and DVDs and clothes and stuff. And uh, finally, Luke got us caught, who is <laughs> leading worship here, okay? And uh, he was like, I am chat, I, I won't throw him under the bus, okay? But Luke got us caught and, and Luke's parents called my parents because Luke's the other executive pastor here and we've been best friends our whole lives. Luke's parents called my parents and said, hey, um, we found these chats of Luke doing sketchy things and sneaking out and stealing and like on instant messenger. And he swears that Wilson's not involved. But we just wanna tell you what's going on because you know, you might wanna talk to Wilson about it. So Luke's an amazing friend, okay? He covered for me. And um, I knew that something was up because Luke's parents, Luke's mom always picked us up from wrestling practice. And usually uh, we would both just get dropped off or we, I would go to her, his house and hang out until he had dinner and then I'd walk home. But on this like afternoon, his mom just drove right past the driveway and dropped me off at home. And I was like, oh, that's weird. And then my parents get a call and they, and it's uh, Luke's parents, Jerry and Teresa, telling them, hey, we figured out Luke's been stealing a bunch. We think Wilson might be involved. And so my parents call me, from, call me upstairs, say, hey, like, here's what we heard, what's going on? And I'm just like, I did it. I'm so sorry. I run up to my room and get like shoe boxes full of DVDs and gum. And I'm like, I did it, I'm sorry. And I just felt, I just had such a sensitive conscience that I was like barely able to hide this to begin with. And so all you had to do was like lightly put your thumb on me and I, break, you know? I would have ratted Luke out instantly, you know? <laughs> Unlike how he like covered for me. And one of the things, I just kind of went on like a confession rampage. I was like, here's all the things I've been doing wrong, you know? And one of the things I've been doing wrong was cheating on tests in school. So I told my parents about it and, and they said, well, what are you gonna do to make that right? I said, well, I think I should um, confess to my teachers, you know, tell them I'm sorry that I did that. And so I'll never forget going to, it was my uh, pre-calculus professor that I, or teacher I needed to apologize to and my biology professor. And Rex Brooking, he was one of the assistant principals at Corian High School. I, I went to him before first block and I said, hey, I'm, I'm, I was literally crying as I did this because I was just so frazzled and you know, my heart was all wrapped up in it. I said, hey, I've cheated on several tests and I just wanna tell you that, I'm really sorry and um, I won't do it again, you know, but I just want you to know that I wanna make it right to you, I'm, I'm sorry. And he just said, Wilson, you know, that was wrong of you to do, but it takes an incredible amount of um, honor and integrity to confess that to me. I forgive you, 
I trust you not to do it anymore. And you're an amazing man for confessing that. You're being a real man right now. Like, good job. And I just started weeping even more, you know. And then we fast forward to my fourth block. And I go to, I'm just going to call him Mr. Q because I don't want to throw him under the bus. But I go to my biology professor and I say, hey, give him the whole spiel. And I'm probably a little chipper at this point, which probably wasn't good for me because I received all that mercy from Mr. Brooking. So, hey, I've done this. I've been cheating and I just, I'm sorry. I want to confess that to you. And he goes, if I, I'm going to have my eye on you. And if I ever see you look at any newspaper again, you're done. I'm, you're gone. Like, I'm going to flunk you, send you to the principal's office. You better never do that again. You're lucky I didn't, like, literally just unleashes all of his pent-up marital problems and whatever, you know, like, releases it all on me, you know? And I'm just like, dang, man, like, okay, like, I will definitely not cheat here anymore, you know? And my point is this, a lot of us, that's kind of like the perspective we have of God. <laughs> it's easy to fall into that perspective of God. And maybe in our mind we wouldn't say that, but the truth is, if when we mess up or when we sin, we don't feel like falling towards God and running towards Him, but we're a little nervous, then it hasn't sunk into our spirit yet that God is like Mr. Brooking. <laughs> God is forgiving. He looks for authenticity in our hearts just to repent. So we see that in the nation of Israel, that if they ever had an authentic heart to repent, God would relent from the curses and would um, not send them to exile and would bless them. So let's look at covenants now as we move along. Thanks. Um, God makes several covenants in the Old Testament. And when we think of covenants, there's a whole different kind of, there's tons of different covenants. They were a very relevant to that time in history form of interaction between um, parties, okay? And when we, think of when we think of covenant, we can't just reduce it to contract. Let's throw up the quote by Derek Morphew. Um, okay, so the Sinai covenant, the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai, which is where he gave them the law. There's a lot of covenants he made, but this is the one where he gave them actual law. He, it says this, the Sinai covenant is a kingdom covenant. It is a treaty laying down the terms upon which the conquering Lord is prepared to relate to the conquered nation. So here's what's really unique. There's not much evidence that nations in the ancient Near East were ever in covenants with gods. Covenants were always something that human kings would make with a people when they conquered them. So the very idea that God will make a covenant is a sign of God stepping into culture. He decided, hey, I'm gonna relate with humanity through the means and the culture of that day. I'm gonna make a covenant with them. That should remind us of is Jesus especially this time of year. He took on flesh. He stepped into culture. He said, I'm gonna meet humans on their level. I'm gonna be a savior that experiences what they experience. And so a couple things about this. When we think of covenant, what we wanna be thinking of is like a modern day contract plus a treaty rolled into one. So what happens is Israel is in um, slavery in Egypt and Yahweh reveals himself as a king by coming and defeating Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and bringing not, and, and then not making a covenant with Egypt. That's what would be intuitive is the king conquers a nation. He conquers Egypt, so he goes into a covenant with that country, that nation. No, he goes and he grabs Israel and he takes them out of there and he makes a covenant with them. He makes a covenant with the slaves. 
It's like, God, why don't you make a covenant with Egypt, you know? It's because he made a promise to Abraham. He's going to be faithful to his promise. He's not, like, going to be conveniently using the more powerful nation, Egypt. Kind of would make sense, right? Like, use Egypt. They're the powerful ones. No, he makes a covenant with Abraham's descendants, with Israel. And in this covenant, basically, he says that he's going to offer them all of these things if they'll live the way he wants them to. So there's a level, and there's a level of pragmatism here by Yahweh. He wants to use Israel for a purpose. And he's offering Israel, hey, do you want to be used to bless all the nations of the earth? Yes? Okay. Then enter this contract with me. That's, that's kind of what we should be thinking when we see them going into a covenant. Now, one really quick other super, no, I'm going to keep going. Okay, so let's look at the blessings of the covenant. Deuteronomy 7, 13 through 15. He will love you, bless you, multiply you. Bless the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock, and the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. God's not even tolerating animals not reproducing. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew, will he inflict on you, but he will lay them all on, he, he will lay them on all who hate you. Isn't that incredible? No sickness, no infertility, no financial lack, no um, disconnection from God's love. Those are the blessings of the old covenant. But here's the thing. Even all those amazing blessings aren't the remedy for the fallen, broken human heart that existed. Even amidst all this blessing, their fallen, hard hearts could not permanently turn towards Yahweh. And so that's why, that's why um, we need the message of the prophets. So let's go to my second question. What significant things happened in exile? What significant things happened in exile? And here's the answer. There are a series of incredibly significant prophets. We have Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. This is slide eight. These are some incredibly significant voices, and, and they brought incredibly significant messages. I just really quickly want to run over before we end. Um, and all this took place during verses, in Matthew 1, verses 12 through 17. If we don't study that part of Israel's history, we miss these um, promises and these kingdom revelations that God gave to these different prophets that Jesus comes onto the scene to fulfill. So really quick, we know that we, know we have this problem of bad hearts. So the message of Jeremiah, the thing he comes to talk about is a new covenant. Jeremiah was a prophet who was um, actually prophesying judgment, meaning he was saying, hey, we're about to be taken into exile. We're gonna be taken into exile. Repent, repent, repent. And then God finally says, stop telling them to repent. Don't pray for them. I gotta take them into exile. And then the minute they get taken into exile, Jeremiah starts prophesying their return from exile. So Jeremiah is just saying what God wants him to say. This is about to happen. And then when it happens, he says, hey, don't worry. God's not gonna leave us. He's gonna bring us back out of exile. Jeremiah was called as a, as a young man. He regarded he couldn't even carry the calling from God because he looked at himself as a youth. And honing in here on Jeremiah 31, uh, verses 31 to 34, let's just really quick hit the PowerPoints of this new covenant. So first of all, verse 31 talks about a reunited Israel and Judah. 
that the whole kingdom is going to be um, brought back together. Verse 32 is Im- implying that this is going to be a superior covenant to the current covenant. How many know, like, those blessings sound pretty amazing? How could there be a better covenant is what you'd be thinking. And then verse 33, God says this, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. In verse 34, no longer will you have to go to other people to learn the covenant, but it will be right there in you. So two huge things here is there's going to be a fundamental change. He's going to take this external motivator and make it an internal motivator so that now the problem with followers of Jesus is not their internal state, or with followers of Yahweh is not their internal state. And he eliminates the power dynamic. You don't need to go to someone else to learn. Um, slide 10, the Ezekiel, what he prophesies is new hearts. So he actually flesh, he takes the new covenant that's written on our hearts to a new level. We're gonna get new hearts, a new spirit, and we're even gonna get God's spirit in us. How scandalous. We're gonna get God's spirit in us. And then we get Daniel, who says, there's a new age and a new humanity coming. You see, the Hebrew concept was not as much centuries or decades or whatever. They were thinking in terms of ages. That all time that has happened so far is, is kind of like broken and, and malfunctioned after Adam. And so Dana comes and says, there's going to be a new age that comes. There's going to be a new whole era of existence. This age is going to end and there'll be a new era that comes. And who's the person that's going to bring that new era, that new age? The son of man. What was Jesus' favorite title for himself? Son of man. So what that's supposed to say is, oh my goodness, the new age is here. (laughs) Whenever Jesus declares himself as the son of man, you're thinking, oh wow, a whole new order of, of history, a whole new order of existence is breaking into the present, into this old evil age. The new age is happening right now. So that's me just spouting on the wall for us what happened between verses 12 to 17. A lot, right? A lot of really good stuff that sets the stage for our Lord and our Messiah to come and um, inaugurate his kingdom and inaugurate that new age. Will you guys stand with me? And would the prayer teams come down to the front? Holy Spirit, we just say we don't, we don't want to have a fearful mentality of you or of Father God. I pray, Lord, that you do something significant in our minds right now to where we run to you when we need to repent. If that struck you earlier, just put your hands on your head. God's, God's just going to rewire things and bring peace to your mind. So, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who just run to you in repentance. There wouldn't be fear or... Um, Uh, like a a bad God concept around repentance, but that we would just know you're gonna accept and love and bless us when we come to you with an authentic heart where we own what we've done wrong. And Lord, I pray that you give all, I I just pray for that, that line, Christ is the Lord, that just was piercing my heart during worship. Lord, let us walk with a revelation of you being Lord all week over our circumstances, over politics, over our job, over... Um, relational problems, over sickness, you are Lord. 
And I pray that you would infuse us with power to bring your lordship to, the, to this moment, to bring your kingdom and to bring your healing right here on earth in all of our circumstances. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, have an amazing week, everybody. Come on down and get some prayer, but um, we'll see you next week.